Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed from KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. We were singing bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye. Singing, this'll be the day that I die. This'll be the day that I die. Don McLean's song has been called a masterpiece. The greatest song ever written, but the lyrics drive songwriter Michael Copy nuts. A levee can't go dry, and rye is a type of whiskey. It's a stumbling redundancy, he writes, like eating eggs and egg yolks. Copy's book, Words and Music, is a manifesto for better song lyrics in which he skewers even the most lauded songwriters. And that's all next, right after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Author Michael Copy says we've all been happily singing along to abysmal music lyrics without noticing. In his book, Words and Music into the Future, which he calls a treatise and a manifesto, he excoriates the lyrics of even our most beloved songwriters like Bob Dylan and John Lennon. And he talks about what makes song lyrics great. Welcome, Michael Copy. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Mr. Krasny. And before we go too far, let me just say congratulations to you. I understand you're leaving after a zillion years there. And uh, how many years were you on the air? Have you been on the air? I think you got the number right. No, it's actually 28. 28. I it will be 28. Soon. I listened to you many times when I lived south of Market at 8th and Mission and uh, always edifying and uh, incisive conversation. And congratulations to you. Thank it you. It won't be that today, though. It won't be that today. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate uh, the kind words and, and thank you for them. And uh, I also appreciate your book. There are some real finely etched gem-like essays in here, and there's a lot of, uh, well, I would call uh, not only food for thought, but a kind of provocative food for thought. You call yourself a curmudgeon, and uh, that may be appropriate, but I would think of you more as a kind of an iconoclast. Uh, you raise some real questions and important questions about lyrics and why they're important and why we should pay more attention to them. And I thought perhaps a good place to begin would be with one of those icons that you hit the hardest, don't pull any punches with, in fact, uh, have a number of really strong haymakers with. And I'm talking, of course, about Bob Dylan. Um, <laughs> I mean, you call him uh, all kinds of names, but basically uh, you say he's a plagiarizer. Well, yeah, I think he's, he's actually well known as a plagiarizer. Let me, let me uh, preface this by pointing out, though, that indeed I call him a lot of names. Uh, but there's no very little ad hominem attacks in this book. It's all very substantiated. And I point out specifics time and time again. I think it's easy for a critic to say, I don't like this guy. I don't like that gal, those people. Um, but if you can't 
incisively critique the work, uh, that kind of criticism is not very valuable. Um, yeah, Bob Dylan is well known as a plagiarist, um, largely of uh, traditional songs, which he's mined uh, incessantly for, for melodies, and also even lyrical blueprints, of course. Um, what's the song? Um, uh, well, there's several. I can go through it. There's a lot on the list there, of course. Well, let me actually say. mention a couple songs, because I was yeah. thinking when I was reading your section about Dylan, and, and you mentioned in a few instances a local rock critic named Grill Marcus, who has appeared on the Forum program. Uh, uh -huh. And uh, he wrote a whole book about Like a Rolling Stone and how great a song it is and one of the greatest songs of, uh, of all. And let's go back maybe to early Dylan, because I want to get your response to a line that's been taken almost of an anth as an anthem of the 60s and get your response to it. Let's hear it. The times it. they are changing? This is, we're going to hear it, and I want your response. Oh, okay. Pardon me. Her mothers and fathers throughout the land And don't criticize what you can't understand Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command Your old road is rapidly aging Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand For oh, the times they are changing well, Michael, that's a song that was, uh, that lyric that we're hearing was really, as I said, thought to be kind of an anthem of the 60s and the changing nature of generations. It applies perhaps to today as well. What's wrong there from your perspective? Well, yes, and it's a song that I, uh, and I think in chapter four there, I give my own antecedents and first uh, exposures to so much of this song, these songs, which I sang myself, but always at that time with a, a bit of a, uh, uh, self-reflection, uh, does this actually say what I think it says, what it's uh, purported to say? Now, that song, The Times They Are A-Changing, the, the one verse that you played there on the radio, I think, contains perhaps the only line that could not be subscribed to by any hardcore right-winger as well as a lefty progressive. And that one line, I think, is your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. And everything else in there is so... Um, superficial that anyone could subscribe to it. It's really a shoulder shrug of a song. Uh, this is happening, that's happening, the times are changing. Well, which way are they changing, Bob? Tell me something, you know, take a position. Uh, and I think that's a lot of his material doesn't really say much. There's a lot, there's a verbosity there. There's a logoria, but um, you're missing uh, a, a, an eloquently stated pointed view. Some of the times, uh, Masters of War is a song that is rather heavy-handed. I mean, there's certainly a point of view there, but there's no poetry there. Well, I want to talk with you more about what you don't find in the way of poetry, but also find uh, actually some of the things that you countenance and like and uh, give your approbation for. Uh, before we do that, though, I, I notice, for example, there's a kind of annoyance that you have particularly with songs that uh, that simply fill up space with, uh, you go back to the night they drove old Dixie down, oh, for example, God, yeah. or uh, a Brown Eyed Girl, they all, and, or, or Hey Jude, they all have kind of na-na-na or sha-na-nas or those kinds of things as opposed to lyrics, period. Yeah, they're, that's called a non-lexical vocable. Uh, La-la-la or even yodeling or a grunt or a, a sigh in a song, non-lexical vocable. Uh, and the night they drove old Dixie down, I think, is really a, a, a very missed opportunity, a tremendously missed opportunity. Um, most, most of the songs that I analyze and use as examples in my book are songs that have been around for a long time. The point is, if you're going to talk about this kind of stuff, first, 
find songs that most people are familiar with. I mean, if you talk about stuff by Jason Mraz or Ed Sheeran or, or Taylor Swift, you've already limited your audience. So they're older songs. The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down uh, sets up a really interesting situation with the uh, fellow who's singing the song. Virgil Kane is the name, et cetera. And he talks about his lost brother and how the uh, Union soldiers have destroyed the railroad that he's working on and Richmond is going to fall or has fell. As uh, Robertson so illiterately puts it, Richmond head fell. But the the uh, the point of the whole song, leading to the chorus, the people were singing, the bells were ringing. And first off, that doesn't even make sense. Richmond in ruins, the arsenal blown up in an explosion so big that it destroyed tombstones a mile away. Uh, crowds of drunken rioters in the street, all the prisoners escaped, and the people are singing, the bells are ringing. It's absurd. But even if you grant that, what were they singing, Robbie Robertson? Give me the catharsis that I'm looking for from the tremendous setup that you did. They're singing, na, 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 na. What a uh, dereliction of responsibility, quite frankly. Dereliction of duty. Pardon me? I understand your consternation and your concern. Consternation. Uh, righteous indignation. <laughs> All right. And, and, well, in fact, let, let, I want to hear something and get your response, which you also write about in that same vein. And this is sort of the good and the bad. It's, a, again, a very well-known song written by Chris Christopherson, but sung by Janis Joplin, Bobby McGee. Okay, we're talking to Michael Copy and talking about his book, uh, Words of Music into the Future, a songwriting treatise and manifesto. And there again, it's a good setup. In fact, I think you love that line. I think it's very evocative, is it not? You know, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And nothing, then? <laughs> nothing ain't worth nothing, if, but it's free. Um, but she goes into uh, this uh, non-lexical vocables again, you know, la, 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 which indicates a kind of cheapening of the, pre of the precedent uh, declarations, in my mind. Um, as I analyze in the book here, first off, Christopherson did a great job there. I think there's no question about that. And also, I have to grant that when Christopherson recorded that song himself, and he recorded it after Janis Joplin, uh, <clears throat> uh, but he also did the non-lexical vocables at the end, but they're very self-reflective. When you're dealing with what I call NLVs, non-lexical vocables, the la-la-las and the tra-la-las and stuff like that, I think it's, it's uh, almost like playing with fire. If you're writing a serious song, um, there's not much point in going into la-la-la-la-la. It almost indicates a, uh, uh, a lack in the songwriter's ability to say anything more or anything of substance beyond what he or she's already said. And it, it's a waste of space. Now, what I recommend to Chris Dofferson here, and I tried to do some research on how that song came about, is we talk about, Bob, he talks about Bobby McGee and the singer and where they've gone and how they, you know, they parted ways and stuff like that. But they travel across America. 
Chris, what about a verse about the America that they experience? You could have added a wonderful extra verse, the third verse right in the center there, about the experiences and what they see in this, in this America that they've explored. Instead, it's a two, two verses and a chorus song that goes into la, 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 Bobby McGee. Well, as long as you're talking about uh, songs that take us across America, I was struck by your writing about This Land is Your Land, which has come under a lot of criticism. J-Lo, of course, sang it at the inauguration. It's a Woody Guthrie song, but the criticism has been that it's a settler song or a colonizer song. Uh, you have a different take on it, criticize it, but you also, interestingly enough, compare it to Irving Berlin's God Bless America, which we always associate with Kate Smith. And I was interested just in that comparison because in some ways, some people would find the Irving Berlin lyrics maybe schmaltzier, if there's such a word. Yeah, um, I think so. I think there's no question about that. Um, I compare the two songs uh, in passing. I talk about uh, anthems in one of the chapters. This book is 59 basically interlocking newspaper columns. I think you might find that uh, a meritorious characterization. Um, and in one of the uh, five or six page uh, chapters. I talk about this land is your land and uh, uh, God bless America. I My own politics much more closely aligned to Woody Guthrie's. There's absolutely no question about that. But I think when you're talking about an anthem, you it's almost required that we become generalized and um, larger uh, or schmaltzy, as indeed Berlin does there. I think, let me backtrack just a moment by saying that I think there's no question that Berlin's melody there is... Uh, outstanding. There's no question about that. That is a rabble-rousing uh, melody. But the lyrics themselves, I think you almost have to go uh, into a generalized area. Woody Guthrie talks about this land is your land. This is from from uh, California to the New York Island, um, uh, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream water. Well, that's not generally not generalized enough to talk about America. He talks about California twice, the Redwood Forest, California. And Michael, the forgive me Island. for interrupting you, but we're coming up on a break and I want to give listeners an opportunity to weigh in here because we're talking about lyrics and how much do lyrics matter to you? You can give us a call now. The number to call 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're spending this hour with Michael Compey, the author of Words and Music into the Future, a songwriting treatise and manifesto. And we want to hear from you. How much attention do you pay to the lyrics of your favorite songs? You can give us your pick of the worst or the best song lyrics in popular music and give us a call now at our toll-free number. The number to call 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. And you can join the program. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email questions to forum at kqed.org. I remember when uh, Dick Cavett said he thought the worst lyric of all time was that song, some of you may remember, by B.J. Thomas, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, <laughs> just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed. Nothing seems to fit. 
Uh, and that didn't seem to fit in my mind. I was thinking of, about some other lyrics along. Some of you may remember uh, Wham doing Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, Don't Leave Me Hanging uh, Like a Yo-Yo. Um, there's some pretty bad <laughs> lyrics, but how much do lyrics really matter to music? What do you think? Uh, people maybe pay, do they really pay that much attention to the lyrics or do they hear mainly the melody, Michael? You know, um, first off, I think uh, so often lyrics are buried. And I think there's a good reason for that, because if they're bad lyrics, uh, you feel ridiculous presenting them to an audience, um, as well as the enthusiasm and rambunctiousness of rock and roll in general. I mean, it's, it's there to party with. But if you're going to sing a song, I think it's, uh, or if you're going to write a song, say something, number one, say something. And if you can't say something original uh, and uh, incisively, keep trying, keep trying. The One of the points I make in this book, and it's a very uh, dogmatic book, I guess, uh, aggressively so, is that music is by far the most powerful part of a song. I mean, it carries such emotional carriage and such uh, amorphous strength. But lyrics, if there are lyrics in a song, to any intelligent listener, they are the most important part of a song. You get that distinction? between power and importance. Well, now, we mentioned we Irving all... Berlin. In fact, a great quote from Irving Berlin in your book. It's the lyrics that make a song, although the tune, of course, is what makes it last. Yes, yes. I have a lot of quotes in here. It was a lot of fun finding them, uh, pertinent uh, material. Um, but uh, the uh, English literary critic, John Kerry, who's become a friend over, over the last several months, points out uh, that you don't have to have specific uh, uh, literal uh, meanings to words. There's no question about that. You can have what he calls indistinctness. Um, a, uh, he quotes Shakespeare, uh, sixth, Shakespeare's sixth sonnet, The Ragged Hand of Winter. Well, winter has no ragged hand, obviously. And I came across a song by Dolly Parton the other day, who is one of the modern masters that uh, also uh, uh, addresses that. Uh, nine to five. Remember nine to five? Of course. Okay, tumble out of bed and stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. A cup of ambition. We know she's talking about coffee, but what a cup of ambition. That's a really beautiful usage there. That's, this is bordering on legitimate poetry. I think what we've encountered in the past decades is a, um, a licensing of drivel, of blather, uh, and uh, insecurely ascribing it to be, well, poetry. It must be poetry because it doesn't quite make sense to me. Um, you're a literary person yourself. You teach 20th century English. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. On this. Uh, uh, well, my thoughts are that, that, that I certainly am, am a lover of great poetry and all too often find the kinds of things that uh, you describe as curmudgeonish in terms of what is passed on for poetry. In fact, there's a whole section in your book where you talk about, reminds me of an old line of Woody Allen's where he said, you know, the more obscure it is, the more people think it's going to be meaningful in some way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just paraphrasing him, but you know, that's kind of the pith of it. Uh, but yeah. you seem yeah. to also, you like me, I think you like the narrative uh, in, you like uh, Bobby Gentry's Ode to uh, Billy Joe, for example, or The Gambler, yeah. the, the, the song uh, that Kenny Rogers sings, songs that tell a story. Uh, but, you know, some songs, People talk about Bono, for example, as long as we're talking about poetry as being up there with the Irish poets, you know, like Yeats and so forth. I don't know that I put him in that pantheon, but he's got not only stories to tell, he's often got imagery that stays with you, that endures. And that's really what you're talking about, isn't it? Yes. And as we just talked about me and Bobby McGee, I think there's an aspect of that in that song. I think it's a, or, or The Gambler, as we just, we, you just mentioned in passing. 
And you uh, like Hamilton. Let, let's actually hear something from, as far as telling a story, let's, let's, let's hear from Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman, dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence, impoverished and squalor, grow up to be a hero and a scholar? The ten dollar founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter by being a self-starter by 14. They placed him in charge of a trading charter. And every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away Across the waves he struggled and kept his guard up Inside he was longing for something to be a part of The brother was ready to beg, steal, borrow, or barter Then a hurricane came and devastation rained A man saw his future drip, dripping down talking the with Michael Copy and talking about lyrics and songs Words and Music into the Future A songwriting treatise, a manifesto is his book And... There's a kind of genius of uh, the lyricism and the lyrics in Hamilton. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mentioned in the book that uh, one of the things I try to uh, expand people's uh, appreciation of is uh, well-written work that is not in a style uh, with which they're generally uh, familiar. I, uh, what I mean by that is if you like country music, generally, you are uh, turned off by rap. And if you like bel canto, you're not going to like country music, for instance. And I try to expand people's appreciation. Get away from the form. It's the execution. I think most rap is rap crap. But look what Lin-Manuel Miranda did with in Hamilton. This is first-rate work. There's no question about that. And you can even appreciate country music when you mentioned Dolly Parton. I know you own a Buck Owens guitar that you got from Buck Owens, so... You're a yep. man of uh, many colors when it comes to music, and so are our listeners, and I know they're going to want to weigh in here. Uh, before we hear from our listeners, uh, I want to talk with you about the lyrics in, uh, we can talk about the Beatles a great deal because you write about different Beatles songs, but particularly you single out And I Love Her, which lyrics by Paul McCartney, of course. Uh, let's actually hear some of this. Give her all my love That's all I do And if you saw my love You'd love her too I love her She gives me everything And tenderly Kiss my lover brings, she brings to me, and I love her. Now, I guess Michael Copy deconstructs those lyrics and basically comes up with the single word yuck. Why, Michael? <laughs> well, when you listen to the song, it certainly is seductive as a song, as a presentation. The book is divided into several large parts. And uh, where I first deal with And I Love Her is when we're talking about specifically lyrics. Later on in the book, I uh, address the musical appurtenances and, and presentation. It's a haunting melody, isn't it? Pardon me? I say it's a lovely haunting melody, isn't it? It is. And, and George Harrison's guitar parts there, da-da-da-da, um, has, has become so integral to that song that if you heard it without the da-da-da-da, it would, it would feel bereft. 
You know, that's really, really nice, understated stuff. But the lyrics themselves, if you look at them on the page or actually listen to them closely, it's like, Paul, you give her all your, your love. That's all you do. And you love her. We got that. We already got that. You know, it's it's a redundancy there. It's not just a, a um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, a, 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 a recitation, a, a reiteration of that. It's a redundancy. The final verse of the song is, bright are the stars that shine, dark is the sky. I know this love of mine will never die, and I love her. And it's sung twice. That's basically just roses are red, violets are blue, boilerplate. And I think the Beatles would have even admitted it. They added those two verses at the very end because the song was too short. They did it in the studio. Writing in the studio has been one of the, the tremendous uh, uh, derelictions in songwriting, I think, in, in recent decades. People Everybody spend so knows. much time on the music. But the lyrics are almost an afterthought in too many cases. They're written in the motel room the night before recording. They're written in the studio by one or two people working at double speed because studio time is expensive. I think you make an excellent point there. And also, uh, I was struck by what you had to say, a story that many people know about uh, yesterday, the song by the Beatles, uh, which, again, McCartney woke up one morning uh, with the word scrambled eggs in his mind. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, my darling, how I love your legs. Uh, and <laughs> you thought that was a far superior lyric than yesterday, which is just a kind of reiteration again of... Uh... Actually, no, I don't, I don't do that. What I propose is that uh, if you want to subscribe to the uh, amorphous school of, quote, poetic lyrics, you could impute any kind of merit or... or um, uh, uh, legitimacy to scrambled eggs. Oh, 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 darling, how much I love your eggs, uh, your legs. <laughs> but the uh, the chapter actually deals with more the uh, lesson that McCartney was presented with. There's an interview Billy Collins did with uh, Paul McCartney at Rollins College a few years ago. I think McCartney has a nephew who goes to school there, so he uh, accepted an invitation. And Billy Collins, former poet Lloyd, interviewed him. And in that interview, McCartney uh, revealed that he liked to hear versions of yesterday by other people just to see how they did them and he had one of his helpers go out and buy records and he listened to uh many of them and and discovered that sinatra elvis and marvin gay all had changed the lyrics to yesterday in exactly the same way um uh let me see i don't have the lyrics in front of me do you, do you happen to know them off the top of your head uh yesterday um the lyrics all my trouble seems yes yeah, yeah. Right. i said something wrong now i long for uh, yesterday, yesterday. Right. I, why she had to go i don't know she wouldn't say i said something wrong now i long, long for, for yesterday. yesterday yeah sinatra elvis and marvin gay apparently all changed that to why she had to go i don't know she wouldn't say i must have said something wrong now i long for yesterday hmm. and they changed that because if you say, I don't know, she didn't say, but then you say, I said something wrong. Well, then you do know why she had to go. You said something wrong. You may not recall specifically what it was, but you know why she had to go. And Sinatra, Elvis, Marvin Gaye all realized, obviously, that that didn't quite cohere. So they added the, I must have said, the, uh, the uncertainty, but I guess it was that I said something wrong. And it's a lesson that I don't know if McCartney uh, accepted or not in the interview. It's available on YouTube. You can see he kind of shrugs it off as a, well, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know Billy Collins interviewed Paul McCartney. Billy Collins. Yeah, it's an interesting. You can check it out on yeah. YouTube. You can also check out a couple interviews we did with Billy Collins, which are in the archives. And uh, 
What is it about Neil Young that you call him the poster boy for bad songwriting? Well, Neil Young is, uh, in, you know, listeners may think I'm just this opinionated uh, blowhard. <laughs> I'm sure many people are shaking their heads yes at that. Um, throughout the book, I, I give license and uh opportunity for people to have their own guilty pleasures. I have mine. I'm sure, Mr. Krasny, you have yours as well. Um, the, the book, however, is a reasoned and demanding um, uh, attack on bad writing. And we can have our guilty pleasures if we accept that this is not a very well-written song, but I happen to like it. It's got a catchy beat. It's got a nice tune. The presentation, uh, the singing is good. Okay, so, so let me make that clear. This book deals with, uh, allows our, our own guilty pleasures, but I deal incessantly with bad writing and, and what begets bad writing. And Neil Young has become a poster boy for that. He, his... Um, general attitude toward writing is, uh, and he says it, I've got the quotes in the book, uh, I don't rewrite, because why do you want to rewrite? Then you start editing. I don't want to think. It's got to come from the soul. I'm paraphrasing uh, rather wildly here, but it's very much a correct uh, characterization. No, Neil, writing is editing. It is going over. Writing is rewriting. Uh, he goes on to say that he re immediately records a song because you don't want to carry it around with you. You want to get it down and preserve it forever. No, no, I think that's entirely the wrong attitude. Well, I can tell you well, there are very few writers who don't rewrite. Uh, absolutely. Name them, name them on one hand. Uh, I remember Iron Dottie Rice saying she doesn't rewrite, and I remember Selman Rushdie responding to that in a very, uh, shall we say, sardonic way uh, in an interview that followed soon after I interviewed her. Uh, but, you know, you can count, like I say, very few writers who will tell you that either they do no editing or they don't work with editors who do editing and help them with editing. Let me bring some callers on here. There's a quote in the book here by Susan Sontag, someone who's thinking I, I have admired so much over the years. And she says, my writing is smarter than I am because I rewrite. Yeah. There you go. It's a good line. Go. And we're going to bring some callers into this discussion. We start with Jennifer. Jennifer, join us, please. You're on the air. Hi there. I am loving this discussion, and I would love to hear what your guest would say about... So when I was hearing the discussion about Bobby McGee and the la-la-la kind of thing, there's like no point to it, I'm wondering what you think about the writer using just basic theory, like uh, like un not resolving a chord, for example, and it creating an effect for the listener, and it being somewhat intentional, and perhaps... <laughs> Perhaps Chris Christopherson um, thought it was so profound of a lyric that maybe the la la la's were like, let people kind of think about what I just said for a minute. And it just, it sits differently. Versus yeah, interesting if you go thought, something yeah. else really deep. Jennifer, thank you for that. Yes. Michael? Yes, I think, and I think when, if you listen to Chris Christopherson's uh, own rendition of that song, as I mentioned earlier, he very, very understates the la la la's and it allows more of a, a, a reflective uh, section to that song. But most people who perform it do it very much uh, in copying Janis Joplin, la, 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 Bobby McGee, which I think does cheapen it. Um, there's no question that a song that's, that's filled with uh, thought-provoking or uh, reflection-provoking lyrics uh, can benefit from a section where you have a, uh, to, uh, a chance to think about that. Usually the way to go with that, I would think, would be with simply an instrumental outro rather than a la-la-la. Um, that's just a suggestion. Um, 
the uh, the gambler, which we both, uh, Mr. Krasny and I both mentioned earlier, and gets into a big sing-along of the chorus over and over and over, which I think cheapens that as well. I talk about that song at some length in the book. I think it's brilliantly uh, put together, uh, but I'm not sure if performance of that, performances of that song benefit from the uh, simple repetitive outro on it. If you've got a good song, something that says something, yeah, there should be chance to think about it. No question about that. But be careful. Give give the uh, don't uh, impose upon the listener your own histrionics. Coming up on a break here, but I want to ask you, actually, one of our listeners, Daniel, sends an email in asking about what your thoughts are about scat. For instance, Ella Fitzgerald, many jazz vocalists who pioneered this style of singing. Yeah, well, that's a style. It's got nothing to do with lyric writing. No question about that. Uh, you say you have a break coming up. I can address an aspect of scat singing, of that kind of uh, singing after the break, if you want to. Well, what we're going to do is uh, hear from some more of our listeners by phone and also get into some of the responses. In fact, I'm looking again at uh, uh, I'm looking at some uh, responses that are, as you imagine, kind of strong. Um, here's one who said... <laughs> <laughs> Screw this guy. He doesn't like Neil Young. <laughs> no. Get him up here. <laughs> here's a listener named Tom who says, your guest picked some low-hanging fruit. I'm reminded of an old mama and papa's, uh, mama's and papa's lyric, the message may not move me or mean a great deal to me, but hey, it feels so groovy to say. He surely is aware of some of the more remarkable songwriters and their lyrics. I suggest starting with John Prine and Tom Waits. Getting that kind of feedback, also some real interest in what you're saying here. Uh, let me just read one more comment from John. It says, from Tin Pan Alley to the Brill Building to Joni Mitchell, the best popular songs stay fresh and timeless and enhance our lives immeasurably. But lyrical content isn't the only measure of a strong's greatness. She loves you, yeah, 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 may not be literature, but it makes you feel something exciting and vital. And a shout out to local hero Chuck Prophet, one of the top songwriters of his generation. We'll hear from more of you and uh, we'll take more calls. Our guest again uh, with us this hour is Michael Copy. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum, and we're talking about song lyrics with Michael Copy, author of Words and Music into the Future, a songwriting treatise and manifesto. Take more of your calls in a moment. A little pushback, though, Michael, I'd like to hear your reaction. First of all, Carl writes, it occurs to me that your guest today might not have heard the phrase, let the art flow over you. And Rick writes, what are your guest qualifications to judge song lyrics? What popular songs has he written? There's a lot more to song than lyrics. Non-lexical vocables are melody without words. What's wrong with that? Does he hate choral music that's in German? Poor Beethoven. Um, you get you get the message here. I'm reeling. I'm against the ropes. No, not at all. There's always a place for stuff like that. And there's, uh, I mean, if you listen to Bobby McFerrin or the Swingle Singers, all they do, they're, they're rarely ever, I think the Swingle Singers never using actual lyrics. It's using the human voice as a musical instrument. And that's certainly uh, something to do. But that's really peripheral to what I'm addressing. I'm talking about writing. I'm talking about lyrics that have been written to try to present a, a message or an emotion. Now, as the one fellow emailed in there, uh, she loves you, yeah, 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 is still exciting. Of course it is. But, but I think he himself 
accepts, uh, it's implied in, in what he wrote, that he recognizes it's not great writing. It's emotionally uplifting in a temporal way. Fine. I like She Loves You, yeah, 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 as well. Um, uh, there's a lot of stuff that uh, I think people would say is crap writing that I'm personally attached to as well. But well, you're when, a songwriter, though. We should mention that. Uh, yes, I, yeah, I write. I'm no, no big name, obviously. You know, uh, or nobody's heard my stuff. You can hear it on my website and buy the records, please. I'd like to do that. <laughs> get that happening. But um, the uh, the uh, when you when you give uh, a Nobel Prize to Bob Dylan as a great writer, I think it uh, it goes beyond uh, making one question Bob Dylan as a writer. It makes you question the, the Nobel Awards themselves. Bob Dylan is a second rate writer. He's uh, valued in society. He's had tremendous impact. That doesn't mean that what he's written is intrinsically good or meritorious. And I go through many of his songs, word by word, line by line, thought by thought, direction by direction, to present uh, problems and even to uh, offer alternatives that might be stronger. This book is not simple, cheap criticism. Uh, at all. I think you'd agree with that, Mr. Krasny. I would. Um, and I also confess to you that I was, uh, I actually went on camera on a TV news show talking about, briefly about my surprise at Bob Dylan being the recipient of a Nobel Prize in literature, not only because, well, uh, I have more ambivalent feelings about Bob Dylan than you do. Yours, yours are plainly pretty much critical and negative. Uh, there's a lot of Dylan that I, I confess I like, but I thought so many worthy novelists and so many writers, uh, I personally felt far more worthy. Let me go to some callers, though. Let's get Jackie on from Sebastopol. Jackie, good morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, I just wanted to highlight a couple hip-hop uh, artists and rappers that I think are lyrical geniuses, um, one being Outkast from Atlanta and another being J. Cole, who wrote an album in 2018 that really highlighted um, the problems around disenfranchised communities, specifically black communities, um, and substance abuse. He has one song uh, that's really moving, brought me to tears the first time I heard it. It's called Friends, and the basically end of the song says, meditate, don't medicate, and I, I think it's beautiful. Well, thank you for those, Jackie. Good to hear from you and appreciate your call. And I'm wondering, in fact, at one point uh, in his book, Michael Copy says, quotes his mother, and he could have been quoting my mother. Uh, my mother also said, you know, uh, don't talk about sex or politics uh, or religion. Uh, keep those out of your conversation. There are a few things that are more interesting to talk about. But what do you think about songs that are didactic, that are really for that political purpose, since the caller... Well, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a, a lefty myself. Uh, I organized the directors, uh, the bargaining unit of the Directors Guild at KGO up there in San Francisco when I was working there many years ago, uh, which didn't help me. I'm a, a rabble rouser and a, and a lefty and uh, have strong opinions myself. And it's nice to, to hear stuff that reinforces that. Um, I think it's better, uh, more fulfilling to hear stuff that reinforces that and uh, expands your uh, thinking on the, on the topic. In other words, that, is, that it's not just presented to you um, in black and white, but uh, adds to the depth and the reflection uh, of the matter at hand. Am I making any sense there? Yeah, I think you've said it well, and we'll bring some more callers on. Sue joins us next. Sue, good morning. Uh, yes, uh, my question is on Leonard Cohen, and uh, he had said that when he did Anthem, uh, it took him 12 to 14 years, and uh, Bob Dylan says he takes uh, 10 minutes, basically, to uh, write a song. What's the difference, and what do you think about Leonard Cohen? 
Well, it's interesting that you bring up Leonard Cohen and, and uh, Bob Dylan in the same uh, question, because I do compare them just in, en passant in the book. Uh, both of them are lauded for their for their writing, for their lyrics. There's no question about that. Um, I, and I, I give Dylan credit for his original melodies. He's ripped off so many, but he's also a, a talented tunesmith. I mean, this is this is not an excoriation on mass uh, uh, of Bob Dylan. He has some aspects of him that uh, his work that I think is, is laudable. Uh, and there's no question that he's had a tremendous impact on society, but that is again, peripheral to the matter at hand. Leonard Cohen, I remember seeing a quote about him that he thinks if he gets one good line in a day, it's a, a fruitful day. And uh, the uh, in his interlocutor said, really? And he said, yes, that's 365 great lines in a year. I'm quite happy. Um, <laughs> His attitude toward writing was it takes work and good writing takes work. It is possible for any of us to all of a sudden, Mr. Krasny, you, myself, the lady who just called in to land on something that's absolutely brilliant by chance, fully formed. But it's rare. It's rare that we have the perfect bon mot at the end of a conversation. Generally, we think about it two days later. <laughs> it's the same with any kind of writing. It needs work. And what has happened in pop music is we even call it pop music. We don't call it pop lyrics. It's all about the music. When you see a, a video or a, a, a television show about session musicians working in the recording studios, it's all about how they did this and how they did that and how they did this. But it's never about the lyrics in the song. And lyrics are the most important part. What's the reason for a song? What's the reason for a song? traditionally it was to deliver a message that has been kind of turned on its head we're so into the music into the riff into the melody these are wonderful things but if it's got lyrics there should be a reason for them well you're getting a lot of responses here as i expected you would let me just read some emails that are coming in christopher writes to say that most rap is crap then suggests that a counterexample is a rap from a musical denies the long tradition of rap as poetry and expression and frankly erases the contributions of many stellar black musicians. What about Tupac? What about Biggie? What about MF Doom, etc.? Well, I think that uh, once, I, th I, I, I think the accomplishment that is evinced in Hamilton is a, a, a large step above what most rap evinces. Um, 90% of who's the, uh, the science fiction author who said, uh, 90% of everything is crap. Um, uh, was it Sturgeon? Who is it? I forgot who it was. Uh, not sure. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyhow, 90% of everything is crap. 90% of country, 90% of Broadway. I mean, come on, let's face it. But there, there is good stuff in all formats. It can be done. I point out uh, in en passant again that uh, Cole Porter wrote, Don't Fence Me In. Nobody would have expected that if they didn't know that. The, the singing cowboy song, Don't Fence Me In, was Cole Porter. Talented man could, could probably have written great work in any format. Um, One of the great lyricists, as you point out, and someone who said, not former style, it's the execution. I always remember that line of uh, which you bring in your book. Uh, also, some uh, more responses from listeners uh, that I wanted to well, perhaps get your response to, or at least uh, get into the mix here. Lynn writes, enjoying the show on lyrics, though it's so heavily baby boomer focused. I think there needs yep. to be a wider explanation. Stephen Merritt of the Magnetic Fields is a fantastic songwriter and deserves some attention. What's fascinating about his lyrics is he uses the absurdity of pop music to coin some amazing phrases without losing a sense of fun. And I would classify him as a modern librettist. 
And Rebecca writes, first time I heard the combination of singing and talking in a rock song was Tom Petty, Here Comes My Girl. The melding of the beautiful guitar licks, soaring melody, and a guy singing lovingly and soulfully about a girl stopped me in my tracks. And Ezra writes, could we please get your guest's opinion on the song Horse With No Name by America, particularly the lyric, because there ain't no one to give you no pain, followed by numerous la-la-las. I remember my mother being endlessly annoyed by that lyric, in particular when it would come on the classic rock station. Well, well, I as well, but, uh, you know, it, that's personal uh, preferences and predilections and uh, uh, rejections as well. I think a, a horse with no name is ridiculous, of course, but there's people who are, are attached to it. I mean, let's be generous here, too. You can have an attachment. We can all have an attachment to stuff that we recognize as crap. I you think you could also have a horse called no name. Horses are called trigger. <laughs> Why not call a horse no name? <laughs> but uh, the... Uh, I think we've been given so much second-rate material and been told that it's the music that matters and the music is pushed so heavily and so in, invasively, that might not be the right word, uh, it, insistently, that we overlook what's being said. My, uh, I quote, uh, one of the quotes I put in this book, uh, and there's a lot of fun, is from my, my niece who says, uh, Marika Lundeberg, who says when she, I asked her one time, I said, you know, Marika, how do you deal with, pop songs and she says well when i hear a pop song that really uh, gets my attention i immediately want to go home and look at the lyrics because i don't want to become attached to something that's misogynistic or just plain stupid <laughs> that sounds good judgment yeah here here <laughs> you know we read um, a few more comments that are coming in here michael ron right so would be one of those that makes no sense you like it fine but it yeah. makes no sense well, you, you don't have to be guilty about liking things that make no sense, I think you exactly. pointed out earlier. Ron exactly. writes, songwriters expect their lyrics to be ambiguous and expect each listener to hear what they want. And Tom writes, Ventura Highway by America, I love the song, but alligator lizards in the air, what were they smoking? You get that kind of effect often too that I think is important. I want to hear a cut now and get your response because you write about John Mellencamp, used to go under the name of John Cougar Mellencamp. This is a a very popular song of his called Small Town. Let's hear it. Well, I was born in a small town And I live in a small town Good beat and uh, certainly a celebration of small town provincial living and all that. Uh, but it doesn't. What do you, really what do you recoil that, to there, Michael Cotty? Well, do what does it actually say? I was born in a small town. I live in a small town. My uh, family's from a small town. I work in a small town. I know small town people. There's no real extillation of small town living there. It's and, pride, uh, isn't it? About pride. Pardon me. Pardon me. Isn't it about pride of being from a small town? I, I guess so. But why? Why? Well, you know, uh, the, the, these are uh, uh, aspects of living there, but there's nothing to, to actually foment pride, to bring pride about. Why is it so good to live in a small town? Uh, you know, the, this is fine if you give me some reason for it. 
I also note, and it's a cheap shot, I guess, that he, even though he lives in a small town, he brags about getting himself a, a big city trophy wife in that song. Yes, he does. <laughs> Remember that line? Uh, well, but, you know, I also talk about Forever Young, similarly, the Bob Dylan song, yeah. Forever Young. And I, I hate to pick on Bob Dylan so much, but, but you kind of have to. There's, there's nothing there but cheap sentiment. Uh, may you always uh, do this. May you always do that. And uh, but but why, Bob? This is it's it's uh, thought to be at best an avuncular blessing. But there's no uh, conclusion to this song. There's no uh, raison d'être for the thing other than cheap sentiment. Cheap sentiment in itself is not bad, but it can be something of a waste of time, a self-indulgence. Well, we use it all the time in Hallmark greeting cards and all other yeah, kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me bring another caller on here. Bobby joins us from Napa. Bobby, welcome. Hey, thanks, guys. Great topic. Um, real quick, um, and, and I hate to just throw things at you because, you know, it might be in the book, might not be. I'm looking forward to reading it. But one song, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, curious your thoughts on that. A lot of whistling, you know, not really about much about a guy sitting on the dock of the bay. And then maybe the follow-up to John Mellencamp is your thoughts on Bruce Springsteen, who I find to be way overrated and sort of just stands on stage, drums a guitar, and talks. Um, if, you could, if you have opinions on those, I'd love to hear them. Okay, Bobby, thank you for those questions. Uh, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay was actually written here in uh, San Francisco before right. uh, Otis Redding died in the plane crash. Uh, your thoughts? Um, let, let me talk about Springsteen more because what he addresses there is the dichotomy between performance and and writing. And, and Bruce Springsteen, as a performer, uh, you can think he's electrifying. You can think it's, uh, as this fellow thought, uh, apparently tedious. That's really got nothing to do with the writing. At times, I think Springsteen writes some uh, absolutely brilliant material. I think The River is a, is a very well-written song. Myself, you may disagree, but try to divorce when you're talking about the writing of a pop song, performance and the songwriting itself. They're two entirely different things. The performance can help sell it, uh, can help make it palatable, can, can obviate uh, lesser writing here and there, but it's not the writing itself. So excuse me for pontificating there. I guess I've been doing that this whole show. Excuse me. <laughs> you are excused uh, because uh, there's certainly a good deal of uh, thought provoking in what you have to say. And I think uh, listeners will reflect on this. We're going to hear probably from some more people about favorite lines and least favorite lines and all of that sort of thing. I think it is important to pay attention to lyrics and uh some of them are just uh, put down too quickly and really don't go through an editing process or a thought process. They're more, I suppose, stylized for the melody or for the performance, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I said it earlier, but we've all seen accounts of albums that are written in the last few days before recording or that they wrote this verse or that verse in the recording studio. Now, as I also said, and I think I'm trying to be uh, I'm trying to be kind and generous here and, and uh, not too dogmatic. It can happen. The story of uh, Stand By Your Man, Tammy Wynette's song, and I've seen it uh, in several accounts, so I guess it's true, is that it was written at the last minute in the recording studio. And it's one of her signature songs, Stand By Your Man, and I think it's a song that will stand the test of time. But it was put together in the recording studio. However, not completely. The lyrical blueprint, the idea for the song, had already been worked out, and they simply finished it in the recording studio. We've got just uh, a, a little time left here, Michael. I'd like just, to hear, what give, give us a sense of what you feel is a great lyric, an enduring lyric, and a lyric for really test of time. Well, uh, there's 
as uh, we we've, we've done nothing really or a lot of castigating of material in this this discussion but i have chapters here on stuff that i personally think is great saw or great songwriting um you in rock and roll which is something we should have talked about by the way uh, some of the most revered songs in rock and roll are those that diverge the greatest from standard format and a couple that i address in there are uh, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen and The Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. Those are very revered songs. They're, they're silly. They make absolutely no sense. But what makes them, I think, appealing is the musical context. These are not just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge songs. They go who knows where. They take you places. But And what they resemble more than anything else is an extended musical scene from a Broadway show. I Talk about I, that. I, I like that image, and I think that's a, a very uh, well-etched image. Again, just a quick number sure. of seconds left here. Only seconds left here. No, I just want to ask you, this is from there a listener named chapters, Megan. There are, who says, there are chapters in here about great songwriting. I yeah. Proposed double uh, Go ahead. And I, I recommend the book, but this is a listener, Megan, who says, I hope your guests will speak a bit about the groundbreaking lyrical work going on in contemporary hip-hop, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning Kendrick Lamar. How does hip-hop fit into the conversation? Well, the, one great thing about hip hop, one great thing about rap is that rhyme has gone out the window. And I think that's a good thing. We get tired of Moon June Spoon and Missing Kissing. Uh, and rap has contributed tremendously to that. Michael Cobby, good to have you with us. Congratulations on the book and appreciated the time you spent with us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Mr. Krasny. Good talking to you. And once again, congratulations on 28 wonderful years. Thank you for that. And again, the book is called Words and Music into the Future, a songwriting treatise and manifesto. Thank you for listening to this morning's program. And for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.